Having sung those words together, let's now give our attention to the reading of Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 17 and following. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. That last verse that I just read has the word go, telling Simon Peter, you need to go. It's the same word that is used in what we typically call the Great Commission, where Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. So Peter had been going. The first part of Acts tells how he, other apostles, other disciples, have been going all about Judea, even Samaria, teaching about Jesus. But here, Peter is going to be called to go in another direction. He's about to meet a man named Cornelius, who was a centurion of the occupying Roman army. He was a Gentile. But he was also a man that, from this context, we learn, had a reputation among the Jewish people, and also with God, of being a pious man and a man of charity. Yet, he was on the outside. Peter was going to have to make a decision as to whether he was going to go on a grand adventure. And that's what I'm calling the sermon today, a grand adventure. In this adventure, Peter was doing what typically takes place in an adventure. One dictionary definition of adventure is it's an undertaking involving danger an unknown risk. And that's exactly what Peter is being called to on this occasion. Now he had this vision, and I expect that many of you remember this story well, of a sheet coming down from heaven, all types of animals in it, and for the Jew it was said, both clean and unclean animals. And then there's the hunter's verse from the New Testament. Those of you who hunt. Peter, Rise up, kill, and eat. I thought that was funny. Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter's response three different times is, Lord, I've never put anything impure in my mouth. I can't do it. And then God says to him, don't hesitate to go with these men. The word hesitate could also be translated, don't differentiate. Peter, don't differentiate about these people who are outside the gate. And what Peter discovers is that he has been fenced in. Because there are some taboos and some traditions within Judaism that goes beyond the law. In fact, later on, Peter will say in verse 28, when he gets to Cornelius' house, 
You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit with him. That word translated law here is not the word that is normally translated law. It's a word for that fence that had been built around the law. And there were good reasons for it. There were good motivations. Because it was going to show respect for God and the respect for God's purposes and respect for God's law. And we build this fence so that we won't get close to breaking it. But in this case, what had happened is not only had Peter been fenced in, those like Cornelius had been fenced out. And I think it's interesting that in this story, that the men are waiting outside the gate. And the question is going to be for Peter, Peter, are you willing to open the gate and let these men in because you normally would not be able to have contact with them or association with them. Peter's about to go on a grand adventure, and it's going to be risky. In fact, it's so risky that in chapter 11, Peter is called on the carpet in Jerusalem for having eaten with Gentiles. But as Peter goes to Simon or to Cornelius' house, something beautiful happens. He gets the opportunity to preach the gospel. He tells the story of Jesus. He tells how they had witnessed his death, burial, and resurrection, and that they had been sent to proclaim this good news to people even like Cornelius. Peter's fence had been broken down. He had opened the gate. He had been willing to go. But it had been a struggle for him. Because in the context of what I read earlier, it says that Peter was thinking and wondering about what the meaning of this sheet being let down from heaven and him being told to do something that he thought was wrong to do. But what Peter finally realized with this, this vision was not about clean and unclean animals. It was about who had been classified as clean and unclean people. And God had told him, don't declare unclean what I have made clean. And then something really unusual happens. As Peter is preaching, the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. And the Jews with him can't believe that it's happened. We might recall that in chapter 2, something similar had happened, but it had been among Jewish believers that were at the temple. But now even the Gentiles are included, and Peter raises this question. What prevents these people from being baptized? Which meant not just that they were going to be incorporated into Jesus, that they were going to be saved, but they were also being incorporated into the church as they were. It was risky. It was dangerous. But Peter had to move through the fence and go where God was calling him. Don't differentiate between people. Robert Gallagher, in a book that he wrote a chapter in, Breaking Through Boundaries, Biblical Perspectives on Mission from the Outside In, tells the story of when he was in seminary. And in seminary, he was taking a cultural anthropology class. It was called Christian anthropology. 
And in that class, they were talking about the differences between ethnic groups and races and cultural practices and so forth. And ultimately, he had thought through all of this and said, I'm not prejudiced at all. But then some things came back in his memory from when he was a child about some Chinese that lived among them and some Indians that lived among them. And he realized, you know, I do have some prejudices. And he was sitting in this seminary classroom with a Chinese man on his left and an Indian man on his right. And he was so convicted that day that he said, I need to apologize. And after class was over, he spoke to the Chinese man and said, I need to tell you, I've been prejudiced and told him some of the story. And the Chinese guy laughed and said, oh, that's nothing. You ought to hear what we say about you guys. <laughs> it's a part of our fallen nature. But the church calls us through Jesus to be willing to break some fences, to let people who are not like us have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to be changed. I want to read a quote from William Willimon and his comments on this chapter. This is the way it is sometimes in the church. If Jesus Christ is Lord, then the church has the adventurous task of penetrating new areas of His Lordship. Expecting surprises and new implications of the gospel which cannot be explained on any basis other than our Lord has shown us something we could not have seen on our own. Even if we were looking only at Scripture, this does not mean an undisciplined flight or fancy into our own bold new ideas or pitiful effort to catch the wind of the latest trend in the culture under the guise of seeking new revelation. Rather, it means that we are continuing to penetrate the significance of the scriptural witness that Jesus Christ is Lord and to be faithful to divine prodding. Faith, when it comes down to it, is our often breathless attempt to keep up with the redemptive activity of God, to keep asking ourselves, what is God doing? Where on earth is God going now? I've selected a video by a church historian named Justo Gonzalez. Justo was a Cuban who came to the United States, and he tells just a bit of his story in this video. And I want you to hear it and hear the story of Cornelius and Peter as we listen to him. Nothing to do with race, anything like that. It had to do with religion. Because it had nothing to do with uh, race, anything like that. It had to do with religion. And then when I came to this country and I found out that I also was a minority, and now in another sense, uh, I, I could somehow transfer that and be able to say, well, <laughs> this is who I am, and, uh, and I can claim that. Being a Methodist, and we shouldn't call ourselves Methodists, we call ourselves Evangelicals, because Protestants were so few that we collected with each other, and we didn't bother whether the people next door were Presbyterians or Baptists or whatever. We were all evangelicals, and we all worked together. Part of what I see happening in many of our Latino immigrant communities, not the ones that really settled for a long time, is that the church becomes more like a family. 
many immigrants, especially those who come from, from rural areas, come from a background uh, in which a family is not just mama, dad, and the kids. is uh, uh, the uncle and the, and the niece and the, and the aunt and the grandparents and the, the, the brothers-in-law and the, uh, even people who are related by baptism. You have the compadres, which are people, the relation between the parents and the, and the godparents. So have, that's family. Now, it is very difficult and painful to be torn out of that. It is very lonely. And you get people who live, uh, uh, leave uh, the place where they were living and uh, uh, come here, perhaps in the nuclear family, perhaps usually without. And then the sense of not just loneliness, but rootlessness of, of, of being drifting uh, becomes very, very strong. And at that point, very often, the church becomes our family. And that's when, when many Latino churches, when you say sister and brother, you mean it. It's not a title of honor. We are living at a time when uh, powers uh, uh, of uh, evil, I don't know what other word to use, powers of evil uh, uh, are attaining power, and people are learning to hate one another, and, uh, and whoever can oppress another oppresses them, and to be great means to be more bully-like, and in that context, I think we need a body like the church that advocates for people who are getting more and more trampled. The video that I looked at actually had transcription, and I was having trouble understanding it here. I don't know if you could or not. The main point was Dr. Gonzalez was considered a minority when he was in Cuba because he was Christian. He comes to the United States and discovers that he's a minority because he's considered on the outside because he's not American. But that in the Hispanic background, that family is so important and community is so important that when they come here alone, they lose all that. One of the things that is being accomplished in Academy 4 as God uses us to be working there is that relationships are being built that can help these families see the difference that having a community can make and that we are being used to be that community to show love and concern and grace. And now we're finally reaching the point that there will be the opportunity to tell them the gospel. Actually, this sermon is in two parts. James gets part two. I took four minutes longer than I was supposed to, so you've got a lot to do. I know many of you have heard a lot about Academy 4, and I'm sure that some of you are about done hearing about Academy 4. But here's the good news, is that Academy 4 has given us at Brentwood Oaks the opportunity to meet people who are different than us, to serve in different ways. You know, I think sometimes we think about being the mouthpiece of God and speaking truth. Absolutely, that is a part of what we're called to do. But this is powerful and important because we're not called to be the mouthpiece. We're called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. 
And sometimes in thinking about the ways that we can serve, the ways that we can help, we think about being the mouthpiece. But instead, this gives us the opportunity to love and serve and to show Jesus through our actions. And so I want to show you a video. Um, We're we're just watching videos this morning. Um, This one's a little bit longer, and you're going to hear from five different people Um, Because if you haven't experienced Academy 4, I want you to get a good picture of what it is. You're going to hear from the executive director, John Shearer. And then you're going to hear from a few people that you know. You're going to hear from Nicole Ball. And you're going to hear from Michael Cryer and Donovan Davis. But you're also going to hear from Kendra, uh, a fourth grader, now a fifth grader, at McBee. And so I'd like for you to take a few minutes. It's, It's about seven minutes long. But listen to and see what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Jesus at McBee to a fourth grader. Maybe you got a little glimpse of what it looks like. I love that Kendra said, you know, at first I thought, Tammy, she's just an old lady who's going to take forever doing stuff. But I realized, and I'm sure she realized quickly, that Tammy loved her and that she cared for her. Now, I know that this is not for everyone, that some of you, you're not able to do this, this type of work. You have a job that's very demanding or whatever the case may be. But I want to just encourage you today, if you do have some flexibility, if you do have the opportunity to give an hour and a half a month from September to May, you can make a tremendous difference in the life of a fourth grader. And so not only will you make a difference in the life of a fourth grader, But when we are the hands and feet of Jesus, we are conformed to the image of Jesus. When we are people who are a part of caring for people in need or or bringing people to faith, it helps shape us and mold us into who we have been called to be. And so I would encourage you to sign up today to be a part of Academy 4. There are 63 fourth graders as of this last week at McBee, and we have 44 confirmed mentors I don't do math well. Lane did it for me. It's, we need 19 more people. 19 more people. We need you to, if you can read and you can have a conversation, you can do this good work. And so we need your help. We need 19 more. We also need people who are good at science, soccer, golf, cooking, drama, engineering, art, or ukulele. That's quite a wide skill set range that we're looking for, but we have spark clubs right before, and so if you're able to serve in that way and help do that, it's also an hour and a half on the same day. It just happens a little bit earlier. And so we need your help. I think the opportunity that God has given us, that his spirit has led us to, is way too good to pass up the opportunity So if you have questions about how you can serve in that way, being a mentor, being a Spark Club leader, I'd love to talk to you. Of course, Stan and Lane would love to talk to you. Melanie would love to talk to you. In fact, I'm sure that just about anybody that participated this last year would love to tell you their story about what happened with them and their fourth grader. If you want more information, if you want to see the dates, those are all available at a table in the back back here. There's balloons and all that. You can find it easily. We'd love for you to serve in this way. I think sometimes we, uh, we are people who show up here on a Sunday, and that's awesome. But that's all we do. And if we fall into that rut, we need to look for opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus, not just show up once a week. 
And so if you're in that boat and you're looking for an opportunity, this is it. Make the difference in the life of a fourth grader. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. Today, we want to give you the opportunity, if you have not put Christ on in baptism, to do so. If you need prayers, if you need help, if you're struggling right now, we want to give you the opportunity to, to receive that today. If there's any way that we can help you, we'd love for you to come down here to the front while we stand and while we sing this song.